Welcome to The Way Home Podcast, a conversation about church, community, and culture. I'm your host, Dan Darling. Today, I'm glad to be joined by my good friend, Tony Ranke. Tony is a staff writer and researcher for Desiring God Ministries with John Piper. Tony is also the voice you hear on the popular Ask Pastor John podcast. He's a prolific author and researcher, and we get to talk to Tony about his latest book, John Newton on the Christian Life. I've just read it. It's a fantastic analysis and reflection on the theology of John Newton, who most people uh, know maybe as a former slave captain and author of Amazing Grace, but someone who served as a pastor for over 40 years. Newton was also a major influence on the life of William Wilberforce, the British abolitionist who many credit with ending the slave trade. So we are going to talk with Tony about Newton's life as a pastor, the many letters he wrote to people who would write into him, how he handled his sudden fame after writing Amazing Grace, and what impact he had on Wilberforce and other Christian activists. But before we begin our conversation with Tony, I want to tell you about an important new resource at the ERLC we call The Weekly. This is a weekly email newsletter written by our staff that curates the most important news stories and offers some brief explanation. If you're like me, you're very busy, you've got news coming in from a variety of sources, Twitter and Facebook and radio and TV and uh, conversations you're having with friends, and just don't have the time to digest those things Uh, and think about them uh, from a Christian perspective. And so we've put together the weekly. It's a quick, informative read. Might take you 10, 15 minutes to scan through it. And then if you want to take a deep dive on some important issues, there's plenty of links to get you informed. To sign up for this, visit my website, danieldarling.com. We'll have the links right there on the podcast page, and uh, you can go ahead and sign up. But for now, let's join our conversation with Tony Ranke. Well, glad to have my friend Tony Ranke here on the Way Home Podcast. Thank you for joining me, Tony. I appreciate it. Honored to be here, man. Thanks. So you, full-time, you work at uh, Desiring God as a researcher and a writer and host of the popular Ask Pastor John podcast, but I have you here to talk about your book, John Newton on the Christian Life. And so I just want to get right into it. I guess, first of all, what kind of sparked your interest in John Newton? How did you get to a place where you said, I want to write a book about John Newton? Yeah, I guess at the time, uh, you know, I've read Newton's letters for a long, many years, but Mm -hmm. it was when I was working for a denomination out in the D.C. area that I really started to see the practical value of Newton's letters for pastors, Mm -hmm. and especially for really busy pastors who uh, needed soul care themselves, but also needed uh, a a pastor with a lot of experience who could sort of guide the way for pastors today. And I found in Newton's works a guy who did that really well uh, via the letter. And so I just really took uh, an interest in him from from that perspective, just wanting to help pastors today and seeing that Newton is a guy that could do that. I think most Christians know of Newton in a couple of ways. They know, of course, the amazing life story of the mm-hmm. former slave ship owner, uh, slave trader, turned Christian, uh, of course, Amazing Grace, which is the author of this just 
incredibly rich hymn for church history that is still resonates today. I don't think they think of Newton. They might even know of Newton as as the one who encouraged William Wilberforce mm-hmm. to take on the slave trade and stay in Parliament. I don't think they know of Newton as pastor, which is something that you really bring out in this book. Yeah, Newton was a pastor for almost 43 years, uh, so a long time. Uh, If you look at the arc of his life, most of it is spent in pastoral ministry, first in a small village in Olney, which is north of London, uh, about 60 miles. And then uh, for a majority of the time, then he actually is is pastoring in London, in essentially what is the Wall Street of London, the financial district. So he's a pastor all those years. Yeah, the story is so incredibly rich and complex. I mean, essentially, he was raised by his father, and his father lived uh, on the open sea. That's how he made his business. And so when John Newton was 10 years old, his father was like, yeah, that's enough education for you. Pulled him out, and for the next 20 years, Newton was was uh, was in the shipping trade. And so his father thought at age 10 he was, he was done with education. So uh, his father was pretty uh, emotionally mm-hmm. distant and religiously very disinterested. And so Newton really didn't have uh, many good uh, Christian models early on. His, his mother, who was a devout Christian, uh, died when he was seven. And so he's raised by his, uh, his father. Ten years old, he no longer gets any more education after that point. And then uh, he feels the inkling. He's converted. There's a huge story of how he's converted. And then he, uh, at about age 30, he feels this calling towards pastoral ministry. He gets to know George Whitfield, gets to know the Wesleys, uh, says, you know, I want, I want to be a pastor. I want to do this. And so he applies to the Church of England to say, hey, I want to be a pastor. And they, they look at his resume and they, they say, well, <laughs> yeah, you don't quite have the education we're looking for. And so it takes him six years of pleading uh, with the Church wow. of England before he gets his wow. first pastorate. So he doesn't become a pastor until age 39. Wow. And so it's a, it's a good lesson for all leaders, I think. It's never too late. Um, but uh, Newton didn't start until age 39, and then uh, he pastors for almost 53 years. It's so interesting to me just to think of John Newton as a pastor. You think of a hard-charging, hard-driving slave owner and then becoming so pastoral. And I think one of the things that people really draw from Newton's writings and letters is just how pastoral he was. You know, not every not every preacher is is pastoral in his ministry, yeah. if you know what I'm saying. Yep. How, how did that I mean that must that's just a, an incredible transformation in, in in this man. Yeah, well the Lord broke him real good. I mean that's that's the key to it all. As a young man, as as most young men are, he was looking for money. Uh, he was looking for a girl, and he was driven by those pursuits. And mm. uh, one of the things that led him to is the slave trade. He wanted to make money in the slave trade. And the money was not necessarily in the, the shipping. It was more in um, in the British folks who would go over to West Africa, and they would have these sort of like holding cells where the slaves were kept before the, before the Middle Passage. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you could build these relationships with the natives who would go around and, you know, capture men and women who would become uh, slaves in Britain and America. Uh, if you could if you could make those relationships, that's where the money was at. And so he was driven to West Africa to make money in a twist of fate. So this is 1747 when he's about 22 years old. Uh, 
he he gets he gets captured by a woman who's like a a black princess in one of the one of the regions that he's working and he actually becomes a slave of this mm. woman and she treats him horribly um so he would call this his his african slavery he he had a, about an 18 month taste of what slavery was like mm. uh and it almost killed him uh he was he was just brutalized in every emotional and physical way that you could imagine um that broke him he got he, his father sent a, a ship and essentially he he delivered Newton from that situation but as that ship was on its way back to England is when the major storm hit uh, in uh, in 1747 so later that year he's he's almost drowned out at sea uh, in a major storm and that would be sort of the second awakening moment in his life when he nearly drowns in the middle of the ocean and uh, so those two things really broke him um, when he gets back to England, um, he, he something's different about his life. He isn't quite converted at, at that point. Mm-hmm. It would take another year or so after that before he fully understands the depth of his sin and his need for Christ. And uh, but from that point on, I mean, Newton is a broken man. Uh, he he has undergone some serious trials in his life. Uh, God has uh, God has woken him up. God has showed him the depth of his sin, and that is something that Newton will never forget. And you hear that in the the lyrics of "Amazing Grace." I mean, these are not just throwaway terms. This is a man that was genuinely broken by God by two very distinct things that happened to him mm. as a young man. Mm. Can you talk about his influence on William Wilberforce? And uh, even recently, I, I read Karen Swall Pryor's book on. Hannah Moore, who I had not been aware of, who I'm now aware of, and just his influence on on, on Wilberforce and Moore and that generation of abolitionists. Yeah, Newton was a connector. So he connected just a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. He had a lot of friends, a lot of networks. He was connecting folks like Hannah Moore who had money to invest in gospel ministry to Mm -hmm. churches that needed it. Uh, He was connected to the Wilberforce family. Uh, He knew William Wilberforce's uh, aunt, Hannah, uh, many years before he met uh, uh, William Wilberforce. So uh, Newton meets Wilberforce, William Wilberforce. Uh, Newton's 41, I think, 41 years old, mm-hmm. and William is eight years old. So their relationship starts when he's just a little boy uh, traveling with his aunt to go hear the great John Newton preach. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he just, uh, Newton takes a a liking to to uh, the leadership gift he sees in this young eight-year-old boy and just kind of kind of follows along as a family friend and helps him along the way until there's a, a pretty distinct moment when Wilberforce is 26 and making the decision between pastoral ministry or politics. And Newton says, you know, I think God has called you to politics to put an end to the slave trade. And um, uh, William, of course, follows that route. Mm-hmm. Later in life, uh, Newton will come around and actually help preach sermons, write tracts, testify before mm-hmm. uh, British Parliament uh, to help end the British slave trade. And um, it would come to an end a, a little under a year before Newton would pass away mm-hmm. on his deathbed. He would learn that uh, their work was was fruitful. Wow, that's amazing. And and you just see there too a great model, right, of an older believer mentoring uh, somebody younger through their lives. I mean, you think there's there's a couple things there to learn, just, you know, a mentorship relationship, but also just good pastoral work, right, of of, of mentoring and guiding people uh, in their vocation, what the, they can see that God has for them, right? 
Absolutely. One of the first things he does when he goes to Olney, and Olney is his first pastorate. It's a, it's pretty. I mean, it's a, it's not an easy place to to serve in. Alcoholism is pretty high. Suicide rates are pretty high. Uh, the folks are lace makers. I mean, they work in these these buildings mm-hmm. making lace all day. There's poor ventilation. Sickness is bad. You know, really bad. Hours are long. Just the whole the whole town was sort of stuck in this degenerate sort of just oppressive feeling. And he broke into that and he uh, he led. I can't remember what day of the week. I think it was like on Wednesdays he would lead a, a service just for kids. He would just open it up to kids. And like there was like 50 the first night and 80 the next night. And like it just it just grew until, I mean, he was making a major impact in the children of only. And that's kind of his heart is he wanted to reach everyone. He wanted to do the the, you know, the home visitations. Uh, he wanted to go to the you know hospital and care for people there. Uh, and he wanted to respond with letters. That's probably his greatest, uh, um, what I think is his greatest contribution to the church is his letters. Uh, but he's also mm. very, very interested in children and wanting them to grow. And he he says early on in his pastorate that it's in those meetings trying to connect with children that really shaped his entire ministry. Uh, because if he could communicate to them, he could communicate to anybody. And mm. so, but he has a he has a pastoral heart, and that's mm. that's to me is one of the works of grace. We talked about it a little bit earlier. I mean, he's a broken man, but mm-hmm. he has a love for people. People that is 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 genuine. It is deep and it is profound, and that is just a, an amazing work of God's grace in His life. Yeah, and I've seen that in my own ministry, and then just in observing other ministries that you know I've said before that you can be a you, you can't be a pastor without being a preacher because you must exposit the word and feed your people, but you can be a preacher without being a pastor, right? And so yeah. you just see such a great model of local pastoral ministry. And I wonder if if Newton's brokenness was what really made him such a good pastor, you know, that sort of connection with people's struggles and with their past and with their sort of the sin that they, you know, uh, that they struggle with, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Newton, I mean, Newton pastors out of his own personal experience. Mm-hmm. So when people ask him, you know, what makes you such a good and influential pastor, he's going to say, number one, I study my Bible and I understand my Bible. Uh, but number two, I, I understand my heart and how it works. And so because he knows he knows his heart, he knows his Bible, and he's a keen observer of how the soul responds to various temptations, trials, and circumstances in life, he's able to merge those three things, his keen awareness of Scripture, his own heart, and how other people respond. And I don't think anybody in church history has done that better than John Newton. And this is why I think he, he belongs in the series, Theologians on the Christian Life, not because he's a systematic theologian mm-hmm. or a historical theologian. He tried to hand at uh, church history, but it didn't go super well. Uh, but he he has a theology of the Christian life that is so principled and worked out in practice that he is a theologian of the Christian life in a profound way, mm. but it works out in letters. So he's writing hundreds and hundreds of letters. Um, uh, it, his story of conversion is pretty amazing. So he gets his first pastor. He's 39 years old. A lot of people don't know who he is. Um, and so he writes his autobiography in 13 letters. That's kind of the, 
that was the social media of the day. You wrote letters. So you wrote yeah. 13 letters. Here's my testimony. He sent it around to some friends. Those friends shared it. Those friends shared it. It got passed around and a publisher said, hey, we'd like to publish this. And so it, his autobiography is published three months into his first pastorate. And the people of Olney are just blown away. They had no idea. They they he's, he, said, he talks about walking down one side of the street and people on the other side of the street are just staring at him. He can feel the eyes. Like he is just a wonder. Like his conversion story becomes an international bestseller. Uh, he just becomes an, a celebrity overnight. At that point, then he starts getting letters by the dozens from people mm-hmm. asking questions. I'm depressed. Help me. Um, you know, uh, my my spouse is on her deathbed. How do I prepare for this? What do I say to her? I mean, he's getting letters from people in the darkest uh, places of the uh, of their lives. And so from that point on, I mean, he's just writing dozens and dozens of letters um, every week, trying to trying to care for people who are or who are presenting him with with their their problems and their their needs and he's pointing them to Christ over and over again. It's interesting. So his story went viral before that was even a thing, <laughs> before social media. Um, well, well, yeah. I mean, he he mastered social media of his day. I mean, yeah. this is what, when we think of letters, we might think, you know, okay, I'm gonna send I'm gonna send you an email. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll send you an email. It'll be just to you. You can respond. It's just between us. But letters were in, in that day, and I mean, there's a whole backstory to this. I mean, the post office had become very efficient. You could send a letter across England faster then than you could today. Uh, the uh, there was a, an abbreviated style of English language that was being accommodated for mm-hmm. written, you know, it didn't have to be super flowery and formal. You could sort of, you know, be a little less less formal in, in your writing. So a number of things were coming together in England at the time where, where writing letters was the way you communicated with a network, with a family. So when Newton wrote a letter and, you know, wrote 13 letters of his autobiography, he intended those to be passed around. Um, it, it, and that's, so he just mastered the social media of his day, which was the letter. And so it, it gives another interesting glimpse into Newton in that his letters were not just intended for, for one one pair of eyes. He knew that other people were going to be reading these. And so he did master the social media of his day. And that's exactly what the letter was. Mm. What theologians and maybe contemporaries or people from church history influenced Newton the most? Yeah, so he doesn't have the advantage of much theological education. Um, he's mm-hmm. he's uh, pretty strong in his uh, Reformed roots because of the influence of, of John Calvin. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have much uh, interest in Jonathan Edwards. Uh, he thinks he's a little bit too technical. Um, so he's going to – Fuller is going to be an influence on him. Um, Robert Rickletoon, who is a Scottish theologian, is going to have a pretty strong influence on his life. Um, Thomas Kempis, the, the Imitation of Christ, is going to have a strong influence on him. Not a, uh, by the time you know he's three months into his pastorate, he writes his autobiography, and he just you know his fame explodes. At that point, mm. he doesn't really have time to to read. Uh, he doesn't have time. It's kind of like Whitfield. You know, Whitfield sort of had this this time before his preaching ministry started, where he could study the Bible and you know spend a lot of reflective time. But mm. then once his ministry commences and he's preaching, I don't know, like 10, 20 times a week, whatever it was. I mean, it's just the, the, there's just no no time anymore for study um, of 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 deep theology, and that's kind of the, the same with Newton. But he does carve out some time to read Rickletoon. I think is is one of the guys who influences him. Wilcox, the Puritan. Uh, has some influence. Uh, uh, Flavel, the the, the Puritan mm-hmm. Flavel, has a strong influence in him, but the names are pretty pretty minimal. His emphasis, as as I'm reading through your book, uh, seems to be the sufficiency of Christ. Yes, 
uh, Christ is uh, all sufficient. Can you uh, expound on why that was so important to Newton? Yeah, there's there's a number of. I mean, yeah, just in every situation that he gets into and in pastoral situations, he's pointing people back to the person of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that he's going to do over and over again, he's not necessarily going to use the theological labels for uh, the fruit of Christ's work, such as justification. Uh, He'll Mm -hmm. use that kind of language pretty sparingly. Instead, what he'll love to talk about is is Christ as our lamb, as our substitute. He'll use the personal names for Christ um, in any situation that he possibly can. And what he's doing is just pressing onto people that the person of Jesus Christ is our hope. It's as we behold his glory in the gospel that we are being changed from one degree of glory to the next. And I think that's really the theological Pauline um, axiom that sort of directs all of his pastoral counsel. He knows that if he, if he can get people to look at Christ and to see the beauty and the glory of Christ, then their trials will be put in the proper context. Their marriage will be put in the proper context. Uh, The death of a child will be put in a proper context. How they grow in the Christian life will be put in its proper context. Patience, struggles with insecurity, all of the things that we struggle with in the Christian life will be put into the proper context when we behold the the glory of Jesus Christ shining uh, through the gospel and the pages of scripture. And so that for him becomes the the model, that becomes the sort of definition of what it means to grow as a Christian. And uh, as far as pastors who do that well for 40 plus years, I don't think anybody's done it better than John Newton. He just does it over and over again in every situation. You also have a, a chapter in here on insecurity, battling insecurity. Yeah. Was that something that Newton battled? I mean, he he was he had a measure of, of fame and he was beloved by his parishioners and by his friends. Did he still battle insecurity? Uh, would that stem from maybe his past as a kind of a slave trader and, and, and coming through that? Yeah, I, I don't know how much he struggled personally with insecurity. And the insecurity I'm talking about in that chapter is more um, insecurity with our with God, with our relationship with him. And so I'm dealing with assurance questions there. And that would be a very, very common question that he gets. And so he's getting uh, he's getting letters from people all the time about, you know, I don't know if God is happy with me. How do I know if God loves me? How do I know if this pain in my life is God's judgment for my sin or not? And so he's, he's pastorally helping people walk through the insecurity of just in an age, uh, in a pre-modern age, when you, you just everything hurt all the time, as one historian said. I mean, you just, you didn't have Purell, you didn't <laughs> have, you know, clean medical facilities, you didn't have insulin, you didn't have, you didn't have medications that could you know, you protect you from germs. The whole realm of germs is just kind of a mystery. And so people hurt all the time. And so where does this pain come from? Why does God allow me to hurt so much? Is he displeased with me? How do I know if he's happy with me? Does God smile at me? Does he love me? Does he like me? These these are questions that are coming to him. And it's all, it's all fueled by this insecurity that we feel as sinners uh, who want to be right with God. We want the creator to look at us and to smile. And so that's the insecurity that I'm talking about. And and again, he's just going to point people to Christ. Like the more you look to Christ and the more you see your security being rooted in him, the less impressed with yourself you're going to be. And in fact, the more more sin you're going to see in your own heart. So as you become more holy, the more sin you're going to discover in your heart, the less secure you're going to be of your own standing before God on your own merits. So it's a paradox, right? The more you understand of Christ, the more sin you see. And so the more you have to trust in Christ. 
And so what Newton says is essentially the basis of all of our insecurity is that we want to be something. We want to do something on our own, on our own uh, self-righteousness, on our own basis. We want to be known by something we are and do on our own. And that's death. I mean, that's spiritual death. I mean, we are, we live and breathe and have our being in God. And it's in Christ that we have our life. It's in union with him. It's, it's owing to his life and his righteousness and his sanctification and his everything that we that we can live this Christian life. And so, um, again, he's just, it's not super complicated, but he's just pointing people back and back again. When you feel your insecurity, look to Christ. He is your ultimate security eternally. Yeah. What can pastors and church leaders today, as they read Newton, learn from his model of pastoral ministry? Yeah, that's really good. Good question. I uh, I think number one is just pointing people back and back, you know, to Christ over and over again. This is you. This is really the key to Christian leadership is just ma- mm-hmm. making Christ explicit over and over and over again, and and focusing on the person of Christ and not just the benefits uh, of His work. You know, I've uh, it's it's interesting. I every once in a while I'm asked to go to a church and sort of evaluate the the service, you know, ha- mm-hmm. readers, you know, I come in from the outside and just sort of experience the church as an outsider, but someone who has experience in denominational work. And so I can kind of give an outsider's perspective of sort of how this church is doing compared to other churches. And um, probably the thing that I most commonly am asked for is just feedback on the sermon. And you know, the most common thing I have to offer is, you know, in your sermon, you told us a lot about the you know, the person in the text, whether it's a Pharisee or tax collector or mm-hmm. the woman with, you know, bleeding or, you know, there's all these characters in in the Gospels that we see. But rarely do pastors um, explain more about who Christ is in those sermons than they explain who the, the object of Christ's attention was in those sermons. And so it's just frequently, frequently I just tell pastors, hey, don't assume Christ. Um, don't assume that you've you've said what you need to say about Christ. Don't assume that you've told people enough about Christ that they could be converted. And so that's just a that's just a common thing I think pastors can learn from Newton because Newton did it so well. Uh, the second thing I would say is uh, for pastors, and this is true for anyone in ministry, uh, God has given us gifts. You know that's why we're in ministry. God has hopefully given us gifts, but he's also given us grace, and that grace is in the gospel in Jesus Christ. And we oftentimes confuse our identity with our gifts and not the grace that we have received. And so Newton is going to labor over this over and over again when he hears from pastors who are struggling with discouragement. He is going to press them to understand that your identity is not in the gifts that God has given you. Those are, in a sense, they're temporary gifts for the church to be used. You know, God wants us to be servants in his church, and so he gives us gifts to use. But that doesn't mean that that's the root of our identity. The root of our identity is in Christ and in union with him. And so there's always this temptation, always this temptation in ministry that we find gift in gifts our, our sort of meaning, our value, our identity. And that is just, that's spiritual death. I mean, that's death for a church. That's death for ourselves. It's just, we have to always be aware of that tendency to, to, um, to lean on our gifts for identity. That's really good. Well, one more question before we go. If you could give, you know, just summarize the life of John Newton. He's, he's you know, just a fascinating figure mm-hmm. in church, church history, slave trader, turned pastor, author of perhaps the most enduring hymn, mm-hmm. uh, at least in the modern um, period of church history, encourager of some great Titanic figures like William Wilberforce, you know, 
very involved with the Clapham sect. I mean, just all these things. Uh, and then, of course, we have his letters preserved for us to learn from. How would you summarize the life of John Newton? Yeah, that's <laughs> that's that's a, <laughs> that's a tall order. It's, it's tall order. I mean, I would say, uh, you know, Paul's words to live as Christ is the subtitle of my book, and I think it's the I think it's the motto you could put over his entire life: to live is Christ. Um, that's where you find value. That's where you find meaning. That's where you find your ultimate security. That's where you find pleasures forever. It's in living in Christ. That's what we were made for. God created us so that we would be united to his son, that we would live off of him, that we would find our joy in him daily, that we go back to him over and over again. That's what we were created for. And so Newton, is he just wants people to understand that this this is this is what matters the most. There's nothing more important than Christ, and to live is Christ. I mean, that's the most comprehensive statement I think you can make. To live is Christ. It's just, and of course, to die is gain because then we get more of Christ. And uh, I think that you know, when I wrestled through sort of how do you how do you summarize Newton's life, I think that's that's what I would say. It's to live is Christ from a man who was uh, not speculative, not you know, theoretical. He was boots on the ground in the muddy, messy trenches of daily life, telling people to look to Christ, not in a theoretical way, but in a very practical, very real way with a relationship with this 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 Jesus who now reigns and rules in heaven. And I think that's the key to his pastoral ministry. But I think that's just the story of his life is coming to understand to live as Christ. That's really good. Thank you so much, Tony, for joining me. I, this has been a great discussion. I personally am enjoying this book, and I hope everyone uh, goes out and gets your book, Newton on the Christian Life, part of a great series by Crossway, taking some great pastors and theologians and just kind of encapsulating their theology in a very easy-to-read, uh, wonderful book. So I thank you for joining me today. I appreciate it. Oh, it has it has been my honor, brother, and I appreciate your work at the ERLC too, especially in the times that we're living now. A lot of ethical questions in the air, and your labors behind the scenes are are helping bring clarity to all these things that the church faces right now. So I appreciate your work, man. I want to thank Tony Ranke for that terrific conversation about the life of John Newton, about his pastoral ministry his influence on William Wilberforce. I encourage you to get the book, uh, John Newton on the Christian Life. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you let us know by sending us an email, wayhome at erlc.com, wayhome at erlc.com. Or better yet, if you'd write a review on iTunes, uh, those reviews really help spread the word about the podcast and get other people interested. If you are interested in our other conversations with leaders like Oz Guinness, J.D. Greer, Matt Chandler, David Platt, Jim Daly, Molly Hemingway, and many others, check out the podcast page on danieldarling.com. We have them all listed for you there. Also, do not forget to sign up for our email newsletter, The Weekly, by visiting danieldarling.com, and we'll have links for you to get signed up. But for now, thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. Mm-hmm.